welcome to the latest episode of the Noid Knowledge Podcast. I'm Meg LaRue, your podcast co-host and group editorial director of Cannabis Science and Technology and Cannabis Patient Care Magazines. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other host here at the Noid Knowledge Podcast. This month, we are excited to be joined by Dr. Riley Kirk and Dr. Miyabi Shields. Dr. Riley Kirk is an artist, a forager, and an expert in natural medicines. She has been fascinated by the inner workings of plant and fungi since her early childhood, which is coupled with the fact that she's a daily cannabis user. Dr. Kirk has her PhD in pharmaceutical sciences and specializes in natural product chemistry. She is passionate about making cannabis science accessible to everyone through social media channels. She currently educates on TikTok under the username Cannabichem and hosts a cannabis podcast called Smoke and Science, which is ranked in the top 1.5% of all Apple podcasts worldwide. The interests of her team at Smoke and All involve researching the molecular complexity of smoke by profiling the transformation of compounds when exposed to high heat during the smoking process. The goal of Dr. Kirk's work is to unite people in the cannabis industry, academia, and consumers to further the reach of cannabis education and reduce harm. Meg, how about you introduce Dr. Shields? Sure, I'd be happy to. Dr. Shields is a musician, an advocate, and an expert in the endocannabinoid system. They believe that the interaction of cannabis and the brain can be pivotal to quality of life, especially in the context of neurodiversity. Dr. Shields is a biochemist who specializes in the endocannabinoid system, ECS. Their research began in 2010, the same year they received their prescription in medical cannabis. From 2010 through 2012, they evaluated drugs that act downstream of the ECS in animal models at UC Davis. From 2012 through 2018, they pursued their PhD at Northeastern University, investigating synthetic cannabinoids for the treatment of opioid addiction, but the phytocannabinoids always remained their core interest. Today, we'll be discussing the role of social media channels such as TikTok and Instagram on cannabis education, pharmacology and research, and how these two scientists are paving a new path for cannabis connoisseurs to engage and learn. Let's jump right in and expand our Noid knowledge. So thank you both for joining us. Um, We usually like to start our episodes with some background and context for the listeners. So can you each share your cannabis origin stories and what led you to working together on your podcast as well as at your company? Uh, Sure. I feel like we never finish the story of how we met like I even just like hearing the introduction um it's like it doesn't even sound it sounds like this total I guess dream um I never thought that I would be able to speak so openly about my experience with cannabis and how you know cannabis affected me um but I've been really interested in it actually a piece of data that Riley brought forward from social media that really interested me was that I'm actually average in that I first used cannabis when I was 15. And that's the average. Actually, the average was 14, was it? Yeah, it was between 14 and 15. Between 14 and 15. So Riley pulls, gets thousands of results <laughs> on her social media. Um, and, you know, people don't, t- we don't talk about this often because, you know, by no means am I like proposing that that's the best age or that that's like, you know, something that I would condone and or like promote amongst other people. But, it is important to know that it is the average age uh, that people begin using cannabis. And, you know, from the moment that I started using it, it changed my life. And it was, um, it was something that I couldn't ignore and something that I was definitely passionate about. 
and fast forwarding to like future years, the reason why I'm I'm so passionate about researching cannabis in the context of pharmaceutical sciences uh, is because medical cannabis works better for me than traditional psychopharmaceuticals. Um, that they do work for other people, but they don't work for everyone. And that's just my personal journey into how and why uh, I got into this. And it's also why I'm so passionate about sharing the knowledge, because once I realized and understood more about cannabis as a medicine and more about the the science, the pharmaceutical science underneath it, um, it helped me understand how I was using it and how I could use it better, uh, minimizing risks and like maximizing the rewards. And and then I'll let Riley tell her story. But then when it comes to how we met, we met on TikTok. Yeah, it is pretty crazy. And, you know, so I grew up very interested in the natural world. I grew up in Maine where nature was all around me. And when I went to graduate school, I studied how nature could be used as medicine um, under the scope of pharmaceutical sciences and natural product chemistry. And during that time, I created this extract library with hundreds of different medicinal plants, studying them and their traditional uses and how we can use them in modern uses. But when it really all came back to cannabis, cannabis was the most powerful because cannabis interacted with the endocannabinoid system, which really controls every other system in your body. And my personal story, similar to Miyabi, I started using cannabis when I was, you know, relatively young, 14 years old, which is about the average age, though, um, which we learned through TikTok. Um, And at that point, I was definitely struggling with things that I didn't even realize I was struggling with at the time, like mood regulation, appetite regulation. I had a few seizures in my life and never really connected any of these dots. But when I started using cannabis regularly, my body found a new way of a new homeostasis, a new balance. And after I felt that new normal, I wanted to feel normal for the rest of my life. So I continued using cannabis every single day. And similar to Miyabi, you learn what works best for you. You learn what profiles work best for your body, how to use certain combinations to to fit whatever you need that day. And it's been a learning experience that has changed every aspect of my life. And now we want to share that knowledge with the world. It's really powerful. And when we when we met, so initially we did meet because Riley's TikTok is insanely beneficial and insanely applicable to not just like users of cannabis, but to even academic researchers and lecturers. There are plenty of people out there right now that are teaching about cannabis science who have never used cannabis. And that's something that um, is frustrating, right? As, as people who are from the community and um, for, for sure, it's, it's <laughs> difficult because um, there is, I, I think it's difficult because I think that having that first person experience adds context. And so we met because when I first, when I first got on TikTok, Riley was like the second video or something like that, that I get, that I came across scrolling across it. And, um, you know, I thought that algorithm, <laughs> man, it knows <laughs> it's powerful, <laughs> but so, um, you know, I thought TikTok was dancing and cats and it certainly is dancing and cats. And there's, there's a good amount of that too. Um, but I thought in like, I think in like a, in a 40 second sound bit, um, Riley explained GPCR like functioning, the major receptor <laughs> that is responsible for interacting with cannabis and for interacting with a majority of pharmaceuticals, actually. It's a class of receptors called GPCRs. Um, and Riley explained the molecular mechanism of how those receptors worked in under 40 seconds. 
And it was the best explanation I had ever seen anyone give ever. Um, and I was shocked because that that was the subject that I did my PhD on, like the the actual wow. structural molecular mechanism of like what I, I studied the system in the brain and body that interacts with cannabis, right? So like I studied this three-dimensional change that happens and Riley was able to explain that and convey that in a 40 second TikTok. And it was just, I mean, it was shocking. And then, you know, I was here, I listened to a, another podcast where I learned about Riley's um, work with the medicinal plant library and, you know, that's something that was just, you know, it was, it was too closely linked to like my own personal interests or theories or whatever that I was like, we have to meet up because it turns out that we only lived like an hour away from each other. Wow. And so awesome. Miyabi started making content as well. And I at first didn't see them, but then I just had like hundreds of people tagging me in Miyabi's videos. And I was like, I guess I'll check these out. Like, why not? <laughs> so I started scrolling as well. And I was like, this is so cool. This is so complimentary. And then Miyabi sent me an email, <laughs> which I'm like notoriously bad with email. And Miyabi sends me an email and is like, hey, long shot, but like, do you want to just meet up for like brunch? <laughs> I'm like, sure. I love meeting strangers from the internet. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we, we met up in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. And I think both of us expected the conversation to be like very sciencey, very like cut and dry, because that's just how scientists are like often, you know, it's just the way people speak. And we just talked about straight abstract theory for like three hours and then like never even talked about cannabis, just about like pharmaceutical medicine and like how we could possibly like leverage nature to be like better understand our bodies and better understand medicine. And just from there, we were like, okay, we, we need to work together on something. <laughs> I, I think it was this, this, like the theory, I think it's the theory aspect of it. That's was so interesting. Like I know we had set like topics of information that we were going to exchange with each other that were about science. It was like, Oh, I'd love to learn more about your experience with natural products because Riley's experience is in natural products, which is the other half of drug discovery from me. Um, and I think it was just also hilarious because you don't know what to, I mean, you don't really know what to expect. You're meeting a stranger from the internet and like, <laughs> especially as, especially as scientists, I think it was, um, I remember at some point being like, do you partake? I think that's the exact way I phrased it. Like, oh yeah, I partake. Very formal. <laughs> I am currently partaking, <laughs> probably is what I said. Yeah, no, I think you said something. I think you said something like always. Yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, all right, well then we're going to have a lot more to talk about. And like, yeah, I think we spent a lot of time actually talking about um, kind of this gap in education too, because that was one thing that going back to, you know, why both of us were doing what we were doing, like a huge component of that had to do with being from academia, right? Like, um, both of us have been uh, raised, I don't know a different word for that, taught, uh, indoctrined. Um, we've both been in this, there's a system for science in place, essentially. Uh, there's a system for new information and for bringing that information to the public. And there's there's all these barriers that um, existed before that like don't need to exist anymore, um, especially with cannabis and especially when it comes to people who are daily users of cannabis and who've benefited a ton. Like Riley said, like, I didn't know I was benefiting from 
cannabis in that way. I was just like, this is making me way more functional and I should continue to function. And had I known that when I was 15, like I might have treated it differently. I mean, I'm not, you know, back then too. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, what, what, what kind of cannabis or consistency were you getting back then? Like, it's, I, I mean, treating it like medicine. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, every third Tylenol does something different. <laughs> and and it's, I mean, it's something that we still don't have a great grasp on. And it's, it's a lot of individualized and personal experimentation at this point. And that's why the education is so important because it's going to help people understand that we're all different and that like, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a bad experience. Um, but there are things that you can do to like minimize that or minimize that risk. Or even when you're introducing, you know, when you're introducing other people to it and yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, well, and as you're saying too, it, it's really hard to grasp the potential of cannabis for your body if you haven't used it, because it really is bringing regulation to dysregulated systems in your body. So my dysregulated systems are not the same as your dysregulated system. So you can't always just like teach it like cannabis will help with this. You know, it's it's not that cut and dry. And once you try cannabis and especially if you start using it in responsible ways daily and you can start training your body towards a new normal, you can really understand what that potential is for your body and then start to understand based on what's better, what was bad to begin with. But it's it's really hard to know that without actually trying the product. And it's so variable, that variability that we're talking about that like, Evan, you mentioned it, right? Like, like that if it's like Tylenol, it, it's not like Tylenol, right? Like it's going to be, it's going to be different. And that, that level of variability is not, it's not a bad thing necessarily. And that's one thing that we, as, as scientists had an opinion on that we were talking about. And then eventually, you know, we're still in the process of formally writing up this theory, but you know, a theory about why there are advantages to that, that we have yet to be able to quantify, or we have, we have yet to be able to fully quantify that. And when you're part of the cannabis community, when you are, when you know other people or you yourself have benefited so much from it, um, you can see all of the therapeutic effects. You, you are so aware of them and, um, scientists and specifically in, in like, like academic research, they're very removed from that because they have to be. There's there's a reason for it. It's not a bad thing. It's just that it's a completely separate way of looking at a problem um, because in academic research and and specifically in grant funding and everything, like you have to look at a problem in a certain way, first of all, to get it funded. But then the second issue is you have to look at it in a way that has this the minimal, like the least amount of variables possible. Um, and with, with cannabis, that's just not the reality. And it's certainly not the reality as the markets mature and as we get more and more like cool products that have different well, effects. It's it right. It certainly isn't how the pharmaceutical company is going to protect IP and be able to pass it through the FDA process. Which means that there aren't billions of dollars available for research. I mean, natural products are not. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to. Yeah, exactly. You can't. You can't have a monopoly on them. Um, also, additionally, there's there's a lot of other there's a lot of other things about cannabis as a medicine 
um, in terms of like it reducing alcohol intake in general, it reduces the use of all prescription medications, but specifically sleep and anxiety and pain, which are three really huge classes of, you know, pharmaceutical medications. You could argue that we're having problems with them or struggles with them in our you know, in our current society, I guess, I don't know if you have to argue about it. To me, there's no argument that we're, we're having some issues here with, with that. And, um, well, I, I mean, all three categories, uh, of illness are treated with, uh, substances that are highly abusable and create physical dependency. Right. So, uh, that that's, (laughs) even if people don't want to be abusing them, that physical dependency pushes them over the edge a lot of the time, which is what we've seen with, with, you know, the whole Purdue opioid thing. Um, it's, I, I, you know, I, I'd my personal theory, which I'm not a scientist. I am scientifically minded, but I am not a scientist per se. But my belief is that all of these issues and all of these things that are helped by cannabis are uh, inflammatory conditions. And uh, it's it's the holistic anti-inflammatory uh, regulating process that, that ties it all together. And maybe there's different modes of action, but, but it's, it's all about systemic inflammation. I think. I would definitely say that I agree with that. I also think that's another piece of this, you know, um, talk about this theory. I'll just call, I'll name it. It's the chemo diversity theory that, you know, when Riley and I were talking about why, um, it's, these are things like you're saying, you're not a scientist, like it's, that doesn't mean that these ideas are not valid. They're not necessarily, you know, and it's, and it's this, um, most people want to see, they want to see, like, we know with a hundred percent certainty that that is true. Right. If you make that claim. Well, that's not science. And it's not exactly. (laughs) That's exactly. Nothing will ever be a hundred percent. That literally happened to me during my dissertation defense. They asked me to draw like a mechanism on the board. I was like, sure, drew the mechanism on the board. And then one of my committee members was like, are you 100% certain that that's the mechanism? I said, absolutely not. Like, this is what I think (laughs) our current understanding of this mechanism is. But I would not put, I wouldn't put my life on that. This is the mechanism that's happening in our body. That's absurd. it is absurd. I mean, you can't see it. Well, and yeah. not only can you not see it, but we only see what we're looking for. Like, I think a perfect right. example of this is like serotonin being involved in anxiety and depression. Do we know that the serotonin system is like dysregulated or has like plays a role in it? Yeah, we can see that, right? But at the same time, you know, I don't like recently within the last couple of years, there have been a number of big publications that have come out that have basically shown that you know, the model that we've been using for anxiety and depression of like serotonin imbalance is not a hundred percent, not that it's not a hundred percent true. Yeah, right. It's it's part it's, of the story. It's not even the whole part of the story either. I mean, many SSRIs and many MAOIs have an effect on the endocannabinoid system. And so there's, there's other pieces to it where like when we're talking about this like validity of, of a medicine when it's like sleep pain or anxiety like cannabis has just as valid molecular mechanisms for that and even when it comes to like the potential harm and the potential risk cannabis has lower harm and risk profiles like i would say in my opinion but i think it's in most 
people's opinions if you yeah. just look at the toxicity of the actual molecules in the plant, right? And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really it really just makes sense. And the difference is whether or not you're going to value one molecular mechanism over another when, like we're saying here, none of them are 100%. So, And they're just, they're never that simple either. Like we always study things in this oversimplified version because as you were saying, in research, we have to control variables. So we're researching things with the least amount of variables possible so we can understand some sort of connection or correlation between these things that are happening. But we are very rarely studying things in systems and then how those systems are interacting with other systems. It's always way more complicated in a living organism, whether that be the cannabis plant, the human body, whatever you're talking about, that organism has way more complexity than what we're currently able to study with the scientific methods. What what do you think of applying uh machine learning and ai processing to these complex systems because like yeah you you and me as individuals we yes i can keep maybe three variables in my head at a time um but the computers do a pretty good job of of tracking and intermixing that i think the problem or our, our limitation there is no matter what even if the computer is going to be able to track these variables the information that we're putting into them will always, not always, but to at this moment right now will come from like isolated systems of, so let me just give, yeah, let me just like give an example. Like uh, the CB1 receptor is a great, is a great example of that. Like, right. We talk about how cannabis activates the CB1 receptor and how that leads to a lot of the therapeutic benefits of cannabis, but we know that that's not even close to the whole story. And we know that even studying the CB1 receptor on its own, let alone when it's with another receptor, let alone when there's more than one molecule present like THC and CBD and or hundreds, uh, right, hundreds and hundreds of other molecules. In the Where that receptor is located in the yeah. body. That's what I was just thinking, right? Because the CB1s in your brain are not behaving the same as as in joints or something like that, right? Or on your skin cells, we have them like on the on our skin, like there. And actually, there is like a, a fairly recent um, publication where even if the CB1 receptors are on the same cell, but some of them are located on the mitochondria, they're on. This like the mitochondria is the powerhouse of all of our cells. Uh, for those of you remembering back to our our early bio days, the mitochondria is the energy producing part of every like every brain cell, every skin cell, every um, every cell in our bodies. And um, w without going way into detail of how the mitochondria became to be, it is its own little separated kind of uh, area, and it has CB1 receptors there that are different from the CB1 receptors that are on other locations, even, even within the same brain cell. And um, these have been shown so far early, early information, but like early research shows that, that those specific CB1 receptors control specific effects. Um, and so, yeah, we don't, we don't fully understand any of this. We don't understand how then that goes into play in with like all the other, plus Every time you have this happening, your your brain and body are, you know, we are changing every second that goes by. We are in a constant state of going from where we were yesterday to where we are tomorrow. And um, I definitely think that 
when it comes to like inflammation and systemic inflammation, like you were saying earlier about how everything has to do with it. I mean, we live incredibly pro-inflammatory, like stressful lifestyles. So, so are right. That lifestyle is how we live in society in terms of working and how much stuff we pack into a day and, and blue light at night and stuff like that. How but much I we mean, sit, how, our I, diet. I, diet. Well, that's what I was trying to get to the diet, because I mean, uh, every, if you get something that isn't a whole food, it probably has pro-inflammatory oil in it. Right. Everything has soybean oil or safflower oil or and it's all omega six pro-inflammatory. Dude, even your whole foods that you're eating, too, like your your pepper that you buy at a grocery store, like that definitely has significant levels of certain chemicals that would not be in our food 100 years ago. But now because of the way that we grow food and how much we need to produce, they do have these compounds in them that we don't really know exactly how they're affecting our brain chemistry, our cellular growth. Like we don't really know, but we know that they're like everywhere. We do know that they're bad. I feel like, I feel like, unfortunately we do know enough about it that like, it's, I don't, I don't, I mean, not that I don't know. I feel like hell, I feel like wealth buys health and that that's a huge problem. And it's like a giant, we, we won't have to go down there and this, that's not what this podcast is yeah, don't get us started on the food. Well, it's, it's something that we've talked about. We'll bring it back to the context of like cannabis as medicine, because this was actually one of our first topics that we talked about, Riley, was about like challenging your body with natural products, essentially. Like um, humans used to take in so many di- like differentiated things, but all of them came from the natural world for the most part. Like our bodies haven't changed much in the last, like, I think I was reading that like, the last evolution, I can't remember it. it. It was in the book Sapiens. Two million years. No, I think it was more recent, but still a long time, right? It's like humans haven't changed like our actual like GI track. Like we've been walking up and down. Like I think we've had fire ever since we had fire. Um, so 50,000 yep. years for yep. fire, I yep. think. I, I was thinking, I think it's like 30,000 to 40,000 years for like agriculture or any sort of like any mm-hmm. sort of domestication. Uh, and that that's actually not that long. When we think about how evolutionarily, no, not, not at, at all. all. And especially when we think about how our body's immune system is the evolutionary <laughs> product of all the way back to the single celled organisms, like our body's ability to handle stress and inflammation, it began all the way back with the beginning of life. I mean, that's how old these regulatory systems are. They share a lot of like mechanism, like. Um, the, so specifically this is, I know I'm, I always turn people off with the alphabet soup of the name of it, but there is an enzyme in the body that is an endocannabinoid enzyme called ABHD6. And it is incredibly unsexy name for this relatively new endocannabinoid enzyme, but it's the enzyme that I studied and I spent, you know, the better part of five years studying it. And the most... ABHD ABHD6. There's an ABHD12. And it's similar to um, eventually, I know we were going to touch on GPR55, which, you know, and why it is or isn't the new CB3 receptor. Uh, ABHD6 is the same way. A lot of these nomenclature things, like the reason why they're named that alphabet soup of a name um, is because we found them through 
uh, a different type of technology where we basically found them because the genome was sequenced. So all of us, all of our DNA was sequenced and we found these new endocannabinoid targets by looking at our genome first. We didn't know that they were endocannabinoids. We we didn't know. We just gave them an arbitrary name. It's ABHD one through, I think there's over 14 of them. Um, and they're just undocumented ones. And it turns out that ABHD six is very important in the endocannabinoid system. Um, but the coolest thing, in my opinion, is that the most similar thing that we've ever been able to find, and you know, this was five or so years ago, maybe there's something a little more similar now, I'm not sure. Um, but when I was doing my PhD, the most similar thing that existed that we had a structure for came from archaebacteria. So this is something that we all have in our brains. We all have it in our immune systems. And it's also in our small intestines. And it's like, the, this is something every human has. We all have ABHD6. And it's an endocannabinoid enzyme. And the most similar thing to it in structure comes all the way back from archaebacteria. I think that's so cool. I mean, that's, and it's not the only thing that's like that. Well, well right, because we... We like to think of ourselves as separate from the world, uh, from nature, but we're animals, right? And and uh, for for millions of years, we or longer, we evolved with the the ecosystems we lived in, uh, and so of of course, um, we we have this interplay, right? Like the hot topic in in medicine and wellness is the microbiome these days they every every day i read a new paper about uh, about a microbiome discovery and yeah there must clearly there's interplay in your digestion but it it must go far beyond that the microbiome lives on your skin it's part of your immune system i mean i think we like to think of ourselves like separate from nature because we do live as if we are separate from nature i mean talking about anti-inflammatories talking about all these different ways we can use our diet we've through you know through history we used to during the season changes change our diet based on what's available around us so i'm thinking like right now elderberry is popping up everywhere around it's ready to eat it's an amazing um antioxidant anti-inflammatory prepares you for the cold weather prepares you for you know quote flu season and then that changes in the spring. There are different things present that will also interact with our body in different ways. But we don't live like that anymore. We don't even know what's popping up around us. We're just kind of eating whatever is available at the grocery store, wherever that's grown. And that's kind of changing, I think, the way that we interact with the environment and the way that our bodies are regulated by the different seasons. It's that's really it's interesting. something that um, I think of when I think of honey, because if you eat the honey mm. of local bees, it's known to like decrease your response to the local allergens. I have really severe allergies. Um, and one of the reasons why I've had super severe allergies also is because um, in major cities, there is a push or there was a push at some point to plant more male trees. Be I love this. I love this. 1956 <laughs> USDA guidance. All these trees died of blight. And there was this USDA guidance indicating that if you plant male trees only, then the female trees aren't there to drop fruit. Yep. Yeah. 
But what they discovered is when you plant males without females, they produce up to 10 times as much pollen trying to reach the females that they can't and find. And it's just in the air and it's, it's just everywhere. And it's brutal. It's, just like, it's yeah, brutal. One, it's just one example of like a huge number of, of examples. And when we're talking about like cannabis and other plant-based medicines and natural products, one of the other things we're coming up against is this you know, shift in information about how we've been taught about the pharmaceuticals. And I'm not, without demonizing what happened before, there's nothing wrong with traditional drug discovery and the way that we've been going about doing drug discovery. But when Riley and I met, you know, we were talking about both of us are basically in this very early stage of drug discovery. Like our expertise is the very, very beginning of drug discovery. There's, there's a pipeline that things normally go through. Um, and we are both at the very, very beginning of that pipeline of identifying new so drugs. Like, so like my expertise would be because about 60% of new pharmaceuticals originally come from structures found in nature because it is the best organic chemist in the world. So, you know, part of what a natural product chemist does is we identify interesting structures from nature um, that could work as a drug potentially. And then I say, okay, these 20 compounds are really interesting. I isolate them and then send them off to someone like Miyabi, who works with the targets that are inside the body and can actually test those compounds to see if there's activity with these targets in the body. So then I would take them and be like, oh, these interact with the endocannabinoid system. And then in the future, they would take, usually, if we were in the pharmaceutical industry, someone would then take one single one of those and then create about like 50 to 100 different versions of just that one molecule. Um, and then you would test those. And then eventually it goes through clinical trial and animal models, et cetera. And that's the pharmaceutical, that's the route of, of drug discovery. And, you know, when we first, when we first met and we were talking so, about it, like there's nothing wrong with there's sorry, there's nothing wrong with that method whatsoever, but it is the method that we've been going about looking um, for drugs, like more specifically since like, I, th I would say like probably like the fifties or sixties, like that's really when this like fully began, um, reaching full swing and like maybe the eighties to nineties of like receptor pharmacology or like specifically targeting single things. It's not true for every single molecule either. Like, but for the most part, that's where mixtures are, are more complicated. Um, it's something that we've, that with one of the things that we bonded over immediately was like that we come from pharmaceutical drug discovery. We come from the very, very beginning of the pipeline. And I remember asking this question at your defense, um, at Riley's PhD defense, we were looking at, at your data from your medicinal plant library. And what Riley did was take an extract from plants and then eventually get down to one molecule. Right. Um, and the question is like, did you ever did you ever see a loss in potency or like a decrease in the effect? Yeah, so um, specifically looking at the ability of these compounds to kill bacteria, antibiotic potential of these compounds, oftentimes you would find some sort of synergetic synergenic effect like between these compounds. And a lot of that's because the very small differences in what that chemical structure is could cause those different molecules to act in different ways in killing those bacteria. So essentially you have these different mechanisms within one plant extract 
working in different ways to kill the bacteria. So then the bacteria aren't becoming resistant to one mechanism. Instead, they have to learn to become resistant to many mechanisms and they don't really have that cellular power. So that extract works better because you have diverse ways of killing the bacteria compared to one single compound at a high dose. That compound's going to be working in one way. The bacteria can learn to overcome that, reproduce, and then you have bacterial resistance against antibiotics. Which is what we currently have <laughs> running rampant. Like, <laughs> Ever heard of it? <laughs> I, I mean, it, it doesn't help, you know, giving out antibiotics when for anything and everything uh, and or viral infections, right? It's on the people too. You got to finish your antibiotics. Must finish them. I think it's like, I I think where it comes from though, is this, this thing that we always want the most powerful one thing. Like it's this idea that we want one single really powerful uh, molecule. And I think it's, it's called the the silver bullet theory. And it was coined like way back, um, I think it was Ehrlich who coined it. And he's like one of the fathers of microbiology. So this is like, you know, this is like a long time ago. And this is, and there's plenty of of new and interesting research on combinations and other things. And when it comes to looking at plant medicines, they are so complex. And with cannabis, like what, what we're talking about here, what Riley's saying about the similar molecules, like the plants create, like, yes, there's THC, there's CBD, the plants create a huge number of other molecules that are really, really, really similar in structure. And there's not, there's not a lot of them. Like it's not, um, it's not in a huge amount, but they're there. And there is like potentially hundreds upon hundreds of them. Ones that we have yet to even be able to identify ones that we have yet to be able to know. How does that contribute? It, does it contribute in a in a specific way? Does it contribute in a non-specific way? Like it could even just help the transport of one of the others? Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about this a lot, but like cannabis is, it's biomedicine. It's not to be treated like a pharmaceutical. It's extremely complex. And we talk about these networks, this plants creating this network of different compounds that might just be different from like by like a couple of atoms or just like the movement of a bond, but it's going to act in a slightly different way in your body. And it's going to that, that network of plant compounds is interacting with your network of receptors and membranes and extremely complex things. That's really hard to quantify. But as Miyabi's saying, Maybe those fatty molecules in that cannabis plant are assisting the the bioactive molecules to get to the target that they need to get to. The fact that CBD can decrease the potency of THC and make it more of like a sustainable medicine and make it safer. Uh, does that exist in every plant? Is there a similar similar derivative in in every plant that kind of interacts in a in a similar way? We don't really know because it's not something we usually study. We just look for that most potent molecule and how we can exploit it. So we don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm learning so much from everything you guys are saying. So I'm kind of just listening and taking it all in. But I am curious. Do you think there's a place for both, like a pharmaceutical model in cannabis and just continuing with regular plants and smoking it like is there a place for both like for patients that might need a specific single cannabinoid or terpene combination that targets you know a specific illness yeah i think we both agree that there's there's a space and a value to both routes of this because everyone needs something different like 
it could also just be, you know, that they need consistency, which often is not the case in cannabis medicine. And if we can provide that consistency uh, with, you know, having that same chemical profile, whether it's one compound or if it's a variety of different compounds, it doesn't need to be as diverse as what the plant makes. You could still provide two or three different cannabinoids, terpene, whatever works best for that person. And, you know, maybe in the future, We'll understand how genetics play a role more too, and we could screen people for genetic, you know, preconception predispositions for certain conditions, and we could say, "Hey, based on your genetic profile, I think that this strain of cannabis or this chemovar of cannabis is going to work best for your body," and then test that out. Um, but I do think there's a place for for single compounds for a variety, as long as it's consistent, I think that's where the medicine's going to be the most valuable for people. Yeah, and I think investigating what works, like what specific ratios and what other because some of these um, some of these rare cannabinoids are in very very small amounts in the plant, and but still super potent in those in in those yeah and perhaps also acting as a mixture or in synergy as a mixture i mean we talk about this with cbd a lot um just that cbd isolate when you look at it alone and this is again like this is i'm just gonna say this is my personal this is a personal experience thing it's personal experimentation um it's also though based on what i see in the literature is that cbd on its own as an isolate it requires a lot like a very very large dose by itself but that when you add cbd in with either a little bit of thc and or with many other rare and minor cannabinoids that it can be far more effective and a piece of how that could work has to do with this interaction between these different receptors and there's all this like mechanism in theory that makes sense that you definitely can um pursue in terms of like looking at specific ratios i i'm excited for that future i mean i i definitely think that there's room for the industry to pursue to pursue multiple arms of it. I think that flower, like it's just my opinion though, that flower is amazing and incredible and that the plant itself creating these molecules in something that Riley talks about called the natural ratio, which is um, that the plant itself is, let me not butcher this, Riley, is it's restricted by by being alive, that it would create, by, by energy, yes. like energy is the currency of life. So it only has so much energy and it's going to put that towards what it needs the most. And that is dependent on growing conditions and, and other factors. But since it only has a certain amount of energy to put out, it's going to produce a certain ratio of compounds based on its needs. And if we can maintain, like it's not going to produce any compounds at extremely high ratios because it needs a diversity. It needs redundancy to protect itself. So um, when humans kind of get involved, we tend to change that ratio quite a bit um, to the point where we might see adverse effects. So Whereas I do think there is a place for single compounds, as Miyabi's saying, CBD, we have data that it works better with THC. When we look at THC, we have evidence that CBD can make it a safer compound. So although I say, yes, there probably is a place, the data is kind of pointing us towards a little bit of complexity is probably beneficial. So um, with, right, with the, with the CBD and, and, modulating the the efficacy or the potency of THC, right? Um, CBD isn't even necessarily 
binding to a receptor in that situation, correct? It's working as an allosteric modulator on CB1 uh, uh, so that the THC has less uh, of an effect. Or, or I mean, the, the evidence isn't even that strong that that's actually what's happening. It's right? conflicting. <laughs> This is where it gets pretty complicated. And, you know, you're absolutely right. It's acting as a negative allosteric modulator on maybe on that maybe. CB1, <laughs> on the CB1 receptor. So it, it may influence um, how many of these THC molecules can actually bind and act in certain ways. But we also know CBD acts on this receptor that we're talking about, GPR55. And we yeah. really don't know anything about that, except it's likely working as an antagonist. So if that's the case, it's, it's again, the combination of all these effects in the body. And, and what is that net effect? What is that causing? I don't think we fully know, but we know that CBD is working on many different systems in our body, including the anti-inflammatory pathways. And that might even be the answer as simple as and that. We don't even know if we know all of the players involved, right? Like I think the current that's currently that maybe about 65 target that CBD has maybe 65 targets in the body. Right. I've got I've got off the top of my list uh, in in addition to 55, we've got GPR 18, 119, 114. And then we've got. 114 we've got the the trap channels yeah. right because it's right people talk about trap v or trap a but like they're it's all of and them. we also have it's, the it's, effect that all of these receptors have upon other systems so i mean cbd going back to cbd as an example affects the serotonin system both directly and indirectly Right. It, it attaches to both like the serotonin 5-HT1A receptor. It also can indirectly affect it by affecting the endocannabinoid system. There's a third way too that um, it's like without getting too technical about this, CBD is structurally, um, most of the cannabinoids, they're, they're fatty, right? We, we often describe them as fatty molecules. Um, this means that they're going to be dissolved in the membrane. And we know that the membrane, uh, which is the outside of all of our cells, uh, we know that all of the receptors, like all of these GPCRs that we're talking about, the serotonin receptors, the CB1 receptors, the TRIP receptors, they are all inside the membrane and that these cannabinoids change the membrane fluidity. That was like, actually, it was work that was done, you know, back in the 80s. It's, it's still being done, but it's, it's complicated. Before we knew there were CB1, CB2 receptors, like previous to discovering that there were CB1, CB2 receptors, we were investigating um, that the cannabinoids acted by stabilizing the membrane or by altering what is called like phospholipid mobility or phospholipid stability, which is mm -hmm. like how the membrane is stabilized. We also know that one of the known mechanisms for Prozac or flexatine, like a standard SSRI that we've used for a long time, um, we know that one of the mechanisms of Prozac is likely, this was published last year, uh, yeah, 2021, that it's likely due to this, a, a similar thing where it is stabilizing a structure. Uh, what you were mentioning, allosteric, allosteric meaning from the outside um, of the receptor. Mm -hmm. And these are actions that are, anyways, do we know that cannabinoids change the membrane? Yes. Do we know what effect that has on every single receptor type? No. 
And, you know, they are really fatty molecules, and these are essentially hydrocarbons, so they're mostly made up of carbon and hydrogen. And because of that, that's not usually the type of molecule we're studying when we're studying drug-like molecules. So it's (laughs) kind of a... um, it's kind of a unique situation where talking about what Miyabi's talking about, it's interacting with the membrane in unique ways. It's interacting with, it's sticking to everything. They're very sticky molecules in our body. And that's just not something that we're used to evaluating in the drug discovery pipeline. I think that's kind of on purpose. We don't really want to work with fatty molecules because they're terrible to work with. Um, so we're usually targeting <laughs> these like medium polarity molecules. But in this case, we're really looking at the fatty molecules and we don't really know exactly how they're working in our body and how the membrane dynamics could be affected by these different compounds. And the the positive of all this unknown, or at least for me, like the big positive about cannabis research and cannabis science and like the the huge positive about the industry like changing and and us growing as a community and learning more about this is that we already know that cannabis is extremely effective as a medicine for a huge number of things. And that's something that no other, like no other drug in the pipeline <laughs> can say. I, I, absolutely. I mean, you, you, uh, you mentioned Prozac and I, I just, I, the, the first generation SSRIs, um, nobody's even sure if they actually work. I mean, their efficacy compared to placebo is marginal at best. Um, So, and uh, I also, when I think about that, I I think about back to Tylenol because uh, Tylenol's metabolite that they think is actually responsible for its action is a chemical called AM404, which is believed to be essentially uh, the equivalent of an SSRI for and although they've never found the transport protein, and that's like a whole that's a whole contention because um any any of the AM compounds the stands for Alexandros Macrianus, who was my PI. Um, he was your PI. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> um, and he developed a lot of the early research compounds for like. CB1 receptors. And that actually the research on membrane stability is his research from his postdoc. That's how I'm, oh, that's how I'm okay. aware that the research ex- now you're painting existed a because this is where <laughs> his trajectory came from. Um, he's been doing research on the cannabinoids before they were receptors. And then um, AM404 is an incredibly simple molecule too. I mean, when you look at it, like, yeah, it's a metabolite of, of Tylenol, which is a, which is a yeah. very, very <laughs> simple molecule. Um, and they have yet to find the transport protein. I think that like, which means basically like for SSRIs, um, what they're saying is like, it's blocking the transport of serotonin back into the, um, there was like the cells. Um, and so you leave mm-hmm. more serotonin behind and that this like is what- That raises serum levels Exactly, general, it makes you right? feel like there's more serotonin there. And similarly, they saw that effect with AM404 with the endocannabinoids, right? Like, and it's just, there's, there's just a number of questions. There's, there's still a number of questions left to be um, figured out of what they are blocking. And I think I'm pretty sure that one of the current theories is that there is a class of um, proteins in our body that are not receptors and they're not, they're, they're little baskets. And basically they're literally called fatty acid binding proteins 
Um, there's a whole class of them. There's another class of proteins that are similar in shape that are linked to Alzheimer's. Uh, they're essentially, they are responsible for like shuttling these fatty molecules around. They're little mm -hmm. baskets. They come and they pick up the cannabinoids, they toss them in a basket and they shuttle them around from cell to cell or even within the cell. And um, I mean, we have yet to fully understand how the interaction with those baskets affects where all of these molecules are and and what they do and i i find it so exciting because ultimately to me like the explanation of how this like net benefit occurs has to do with the this like i guess it's it's a synchrony right it's a synergy of all of these interactions nothing in the body happens by itself like there's there's not a single thing no no right it's an orchestra exactly it's, it's an they... orchestra and cannabis is instead of taking so if you had an orchestra instead of having like one buzzer or something going off right cannabis would be something like i don't know organizing a, any number 20 30 hundreds of compounds in different parts of the body in different concentrations and um i i know that there's some even some research um although I don't know how much uh, on like differences between like our CB1 receptors in our GI tract uh, affecting absorption of nutrients and like probably also the microbiome. Although I don't think this paper looked at the microbiome, yeah. but um, we're still, we're still at the beginning, which I think is really, really exciting. And it's, it's definitely my opinion that like when it comes to drug discovery um, we don't necessarily have to like discover cannabis it exists and has yeah. been used for thousands and thousands of years, but kind of. It has this beautiful safety profile. Oh, so we're, <laughs> we're incredibly lucky with that. And I, like my, my feeling about it is that we should figure out how to optimize. Um, and, and that there's a number of ways to go about optimizing it. And I think that a huge component of optimizing it though, right now is in the community. It's optimizing our own personal use. Uh, because we're so individualized, like our, our systems all react so differently. I will say, I think a huge optical to the obstacle to this community education is we don't really have ways of educating the community on these things because we are so heavily censored online. And I mean, on like every platform and even even um, physician education, when we talked to um, Dr. Polona Leifeld, you know, she we had her on our podcast and she read the literal one sentence about the endocannabinoid system <laughs> that was in her medical school book. So the physicians aren't being taught about this unless they spend time and money um, investigating it themselves. And then, you know, people like me, Abby and I are, who are trying to educate on social media from the perspective of someone who's not only highly educated on these subjects, but also daily consumers, daily users of these products, we're not allowed to say that information. So we have to, you know, censor ourselves or the algorithm censor for us and just delete us off of, you know, all these platforms, even though we're just trying to spread harm reduction, we're trying to spread information to help people with harm reduction and to use natural medicine in sustainable, healthy ways. Yeah. Social media bans, shadow bans, like, come on. Have you 
found ways to fight the arbitrary censorship? Do you have backups of your content uh, for when it gets taken down? Do, I mean, ha- have you considered publishing stuff on the Orange Guys Network? Uh, I, be, I won't. I won't yeah. say that there weren't conversations. <laughs> we talked about it. We talked about it. If it's really that free of speech, it's like mm, we'll, we'll test it. But no, we we have uh, we haven't actually done that yet. But uh, I, we've tried various things to get around censorship for a long time. I was calling it cannabis instead of cannabis. Um, and like. What what's disappointing about that though is you're lessening the impact of your education. Right. You're compromising the you know the integrity of your education for censorship reasons. So I can strongly say I have not been able to get around it because my Instagram was permanently deleted. Uh, my TikTok was recently permanently deleted. I got that one back, um, but my Instagram. Yeah, I, I still saw gone. the TikTok recently. Well, yeah, but, again, yeah, but the Instagram, no, no, it's gone. It's a shame. And- it's and, gone. If anyone knows anyone at Meta, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like the problem with both of us struggling with this too is that, like, ultimately, what Riley's saying, like, I could be like, oh, my favorite plant, like, wink, 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 and then some people are like, what is your favorite plant? Like, I don't, <laughs> right. like, I don't, I don't understand. And also, you know, we can't even say things like endocannabinoid because that has the word in it and CBD. You can't say THC, CBD, smoking, endocannabinoid, you, you joint, bong, blunt. You can't say anything. <laughs> so it's like really, really, really difficult to put that information out there. Um, I mean, we're, we continue to try uh, podcasts like this one are the main way to get this kind of information out because one, it's long form. So you can actually give some context to what you're talking about. You can, yeah. you can actually kind of present these topics in a way that are easier to uh, digest for people and then give the relevance. Um, and, you know, like some platforms like YouTube still relatively okay with these things, but the viewership, it's its a little more difficult to get a YouTube following than it is to get a TikTok following, at least in my opinion, um, because, you know, TikTok, they're just like spewing your content out to anyone who might care. And that's a pretty powerful tool to reach a lot of people about a subject like this. And I think that like the other the another one of these barriers that comes with like the content getting removed, et cetera, is that like we are experts in our field. We are also people who use the products. We're people who produce and manufacture our own products. Like in terms of like who can speak about about yeah, really. something like this, um, that's that's part of what is really a detriment because I do think in many ways, like our industry does suffer from a lack of that information. And that in terms of breaking the stigma for cannabis, all of us elevating our own level of knowledge is going to be what it takes. And I think a huge amount of what has helped both of us has been like personal recommendations. I mean, people who do love the science and who are like very, like I, I have people all the time who message me and they're like, I have had to follow you like 18 times because it will like ran- it will randomly un like unfollow or delete. And like I, my first my first TikTok account was fully deleted. With it was like a month into it, and it just got fully deleted. And I never even heard I never even heard why or never got to submit any appeal pro- like process. And then you know our current both of us within the last month have faced like current problems with all sorts of things. It's it's definitely an issue. I I do in some ways understand the intention behind community safety guidelines. Like I'm not, 
I'm not arguing that safety guidelines shouldn't exist at all. At the same time, like both of us speak from, I, and I'm, I don't think either one of us have ever posted a video of being like, yeah, like let's take a one gram dab, like, and everyone do it. Well, like, right. No. And but, but I see those videos. Well, right. You see those videos. Not of you, but I see them. Yeah. I and there's, there's other accounts that are like lighting a barrel on fire and then doing a backflip shotgunning a beer. You know, it's just like, is, is my content more dangerous than this? Cause I, I genuinely don't feel like it is. Um, but I, I, I I don't know about you. I I watch Jackass on TV. <laughs> that was maybe the most dangerous content you could possibly put in front of a teenager. Yeah, <laughs> I I think good show. I though. think that uh, yeah, it's also great show. The second second <laughs> that great show. But I agree as a teenager thinking about it being like, oh, I should do something funny and stupid. And but <laughs> that doesn't look not that, that not that all of us didn't go through that. You know, go through that. Also though, like what we know between cannabis and other drugs is that cannabis decreases those urges, <laughs> decreases impulsivity. And, and yet, and yet I, I get advertisements for ADD medication on my Instagram, which uh, is straight amphetamines, isn't it? And and they, they <laughs> definitely can help and they are helpful to people. And that it's like, it's, it's not, yes. yeah, we're not telling, like, we're not saying like that that's not okay, but the, it's the, it's the contrast of it that is <laughs> so extreme because cannabis at low doses, especially is known to help with attention and focus. There's tons of people out there that are more functional and more productive because they can use cannabis and actually specifically talking about CBD and mixtures of CBD. Those are, that is way like mixtures of CBD and rare cannabinoids those are ways that you can modify this effect from THC to gain more of that, like what be a more productive or more energetic headspace or to maintain different, like different beneficial effects. And uh, I think it's really important to understand like that that exists and it's just as valid. And so the, yeah, the censorship is something that is really, really frustrating. And in terms of like an answer for it, like, I don't know. I mean, the, the main answer would be to have it be adopted by like, most dispensaries and having because all the real education is happening right now community level education like i feel like our community um the goal at least like for both of us personally like our the goal is like this community involvement like getting the community um to feel like they have a more direct access to, uh, to understanding not just cannabis like it's it's all drugs really i mean it's all it's everything it's natural medicine too and i think that's also where uh social media platforms could be powerful is bringing this validity to natural products to show that there are multiple ways to change your health outcomes and you can be in charge of your own health um but oftentimes that's just it's either not accepted by the algorithm or not accepted by the people and it's it's a little bit frustrating because it is an amazing platform if you can utilize it in the right ways. But I think there's a lot of things working behind the scenes of that algorithm that we'll never know about um, that are controlling all of our content and all of similar content. Do do you think if you were located in Canada, your content would be safe to post? That's a, that's a really good question, but I say no. (laughs) I, I know some Canadian um, TikTok people who are producing content and struggling pretty hard as I, well. I think that the the 
the thing that we don't really fully have a grasp for or don't understand, but that we know exists, right, is that um, companies who have a lot of money and have huge budgets to do any number of things, they employ people and countries. It's not, I mean, there's countries who do it. Like we know yeah. that the perfect example of this is a the bot. Entities. entities. Okay. Yeah. Entities, <laughs> entities with a large amount of capital um, are capable of basically manipulating any sort of like social media algorithm or any like, right. By like, cat, like looking at certain terms and certain, like it's, it's a very, um, I mean, because we don't, you, you'll never know. Like, it's it. You don't know why someone reports you for anything. Like, I had with my with my first account, I was pretty actively, um, I was pretty actively and visibly queer on my on my first account on TikTok, and there were uh, the first time I was deleted was after a very intense conversation with someone about being visibly queer, which is surprising because TikTok's usually pretty accepting of that, and it's a younger platform, but. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where like, you don't know, and there's no real route. You don't see the, you, you don't see the things that are being said about what you post and what you, what you put out there. You just have to put things out there with the best intentions. And, um, in terms of having backups and everything, like, I mean, we have the hard copies of this and, um, I mean, I don't think that there's any, like, not to be like, nothing is safe or no content is safe, but, um, especially when it's not controlled, like you have to know that that's something that can happen. And that's so surely. frustrating though. Do you get a chance to like refute the claims when people like flag your content or are you just that that's it? You're locked Riley, out. Tell them about your most recent video, <laughs> your good vibes video. Oh, my good yeah. vibes one. <laughs> so I was on like very thin ice with TikTok. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to post like a very non-cannabis TikTok because I recently got married. I painted a huge sign that said good vibes only and hung it up at my wedding. I thought that was hilarious. So I made a video just telling everyone like, hey, I did this. It's funny. And then immediately got my whole account like deleted after a good vibes video. And I was like, oh that, that doesn't make mm. sense to me. I don't know. Posi what... vibes. It does. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what's happening. They, they can let you, they can, um, there is like an appeals process. And so both of us have like a running list of, um, of videos that have been, you know, said to be inappropriate for both of us. It's illegal. It's what is it? Illegal goods. That's the, the tag. Um, illegal and regulated goods. Um, yeah. And it's, I think it is, I think one of their, it's, it's knowledge. So frustrating. Yeah. Your knowledge is illegal. <laughs> and, I know. And that's, and that's like just trying to get that knowledge like into like out of here. And it's not just, I mean, this isn't knowledge that is, it's knowledge that is like, uh, it's, there's barriers to it elsewhere. And that most people don't have access to someone in their communities to even ask, even asking questions. Like we can answer questions and um, it would, I think that's the goal. It would be great eventually. And I mean, especially when we talk about like the industry and product diversity and like products and like dispensaries and like medical cannabis and the medical use for cannabis, like it is really unfortunate, but you know, a huge amount of even medical dispensaries still have this opinion that it's all about THC, which it isn't. THC mm -hmm. is very beneficial. It's, Oh my God. I mean, THC is helpful. It is a, it is, I'm, I'm not denying that THC has medical benefit. It absolutely does. But like, I would hazard away. Some of these places have like 30 plus percent THC flour. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're and that might be good for all of the chemo people. diversity then. 
Well, right. And and again, like whatever works for you, use that product. But for a dispensary not to offer any CBD products, that's a little crazy. I mean, we work at a five-person company. We're all doing everything. So uh, recently, Miyabi and I were doing some sales stuff, going to these different dispensaries. And we go there to talk to them. And immediately when he hears the word CBD, mind you, we have many other compounds present in our products beyond CBD. But he just heard CBD and was like, nope, not not interested, don't want to talk to you guys. We don't offer CBD products here. And I was like, what? Okay. Like one, like and they're like, well, they could just buy them online. And it's like, sure, but you have staff that are educated on these subjects to help medical patients and the patients deserve to have access to that information and to the products and a diversity of products at that. But, you know, it's, it's all about the money. It's all about the THC. And I know that's not the case for a lot of dispensaries and shout out to anyone who's not like that. Uh, but we need to see a paradigm shift in what we're thinking about with CBD because it really is a harm reduction mechanism that we uh, should it, be leveraging. I, I, I really like that. I mean, um, I, I hear you talk often about adding some some hemp flower in with with the other flower to to balance it and i think that's the way to go actually is is okay yeah i have my 30 something percent thc flower and that's going to give me a nice amount of thc but i also want these other molecules in there so a type 2 or type 3 flower to mix with it would be interesting but i want it grown with just as much care and intention as the the high thc cannabis because uh i want a terpene profile right i i want something more than just dried out brown (laughs) hemp (laughs) yeah definitely and And it's hard to find sometimes like good flour but there are people that are growing good flour um if you can find them but especially for new users of cannabis when you're introducing this medicine to people giving them a 35 (laughs) percent thc flour is the worst decision that you could make to make them comfortable with that plant you should really be easing especially if it's somebody that you like love and care about and want them to find relief and help that's not i shouldn't say this for everyone but like for most people that's not going to help it's going to give them an anxiety attack and you should definitely try to give them a more sustainable and and an option that's not going to scare them away from these products and you know buy some hemp mix it you know one to one one to ten there's different ratios that you can mix the thc flour with the cbd flour and then you can slowly find whatever ratio whatever dose is going to work best for you and still make you a functioning human being or if you're looking to not be functioning you can find that dose too, like whatever works best. I think for you. that's the another frustration when it comes to medical. Like, I mean, at least just the personal frustration going back to that experience that we had at a medical only dispensary is that our products can be used with THC and often can be beneficial together or alone. But the the point of like the point of this like new and diverse profile being able to add to or create additional options for patients and for the community. Like that's something that if if we are looking at cannabis with a medical lens is an important thing to to consider as as a piece of what we are offering to the community and what we're going to have, like what Riley was saying about easing people into an experience and that I don't think that it's wrong for people to necessarily 
like high THC or like really, really high THC concentrates and dabs, for example, like um, it, it's not wrong because some people benefit immensely from, from high doses of THC. But overall, we do know that a lot of the negative effects that are linked to cannabis are linked specifically to tolerance and withdrawal that is from too much of just THC on its own. And that there is a high likelihood that by balancing it out with either like any like hemp products that are high in CBD or hemp products that are high in like our, our products have other things besides CBD too, like rare cannabinoids, balancing out that effect with THC can have an effect. It feels different, first of all, like qualitatively, it will actually feel different. But also in terms of like the long-term effect of like tolerance and withdrawal and what that does to your body, you are creating a different orchestra, let's say, we're bringing it back to the orchestra versus the the buzzer, you're creating a different experience, both in the effects, and in the receptors in your brain, and then in the like long term effects or the like, you know, future effects that you have, like, in terms of cannabis use, I, I use cannabis daily, and I don't have any plans ever to not use cannabis. So tolerance is something I take really seriously. And also just like dosing and be, and knowing and understanding like the, the net benefit because there's a net benefit here for everyone. And I think that like managing that, that positive with minimizing the negative um, is where I hope that we're moving, especially in the medical community. And um, I, I think, I think well, we are all medical. Well, in the medical community, right? Like they should probably start teaching the ECS in medical school. That might be where we could start there. <laughs> Maybe. I don't <laughs> It's just just like this system that modulates every other system in the yeah, body. Yeah, just like this could could be this, useful this to know that completely ancient thing that every single one of us has, and it controls like brain chemistry and metabolism and the immune system, and you know nothing important. Well, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice too if like when you went to your doctor's office, they could give you like a pamphlet on medical cannabis and like what it could help with and the mechanism it's working, like like real educational information given to patients from their doctor who they trust like that would be yeah. extremely valuable just like what they do for pharmaceuticals just like what they do for all of these different medical treatments why don't we have that available for more people for cannabis because the endocannabinoid system is inherently linked to every other system in our body and if you have a variety of these chronic untreatable conditions stop pushing every pill in the world on these people like maybe they just need a plant. Maybe they just need to try cannabis and find the right dose, and then they'll be in a much more sustainable, happy place. So, uh, I, I'd like to get back around to to um, how how loud and proud you are as as consumers, which I very much appreciate. It's aspirational. Uh, I wish we could all talk as as openly and widely about this subject as as the both of you do um and i'd love to uh assume that there there's no problems for you in in life to, uh be, being as open but um i mean i noticed in that forbes article about you that uh miyabi you you said you, you guys are viewed as radical scientists um ha have you faced uh, professional biases 
uh, around your consumption? Is is this a problem uh, to any degree in in your lives, or or are you really living in a post stigma uh, world? <laughs> I think I would say that. It's more like what you do and don't consider other people's judgment to be. Um, that is a perspective shift. And at least like when it comes to my cannabis use, it is medical. And even if it wasn't medical, it's okay. And I think that I think that there's nothing about that that makes either of us a lesser scientist. But I do think that it does change your perspective, right, on on the topic that you then study and research and I don't think I think I used the word radical mostly because of the education too. It's it's about being outspoken about lifestyle choices uh, and about being unapologetic about it, saying that like I'm aware that this makes people view, you know, even just like the um like our value like a value as a scientist or a value as an educator. It certainly is a bias that I hope to be as transparent about as possible, but we all have our own biases. And I do think that I exist in a post-stigma world in that the people with whom I choose to value their opinion with have no problem with it. Um, and that it's not to say that there aren't uh, people out there who would exert judgment over being so open about using cannabis, but just that I am judging them equally the other way around nice yeah i mean i i would agree with that too but i also think um i think there's a level of trust for some people when you are just open about it because the, the amount of people that have come to me with for help about cannabis both in professional and personal aspects of my life that makes it worth it to me whether there is a stigma or not like I only hang around people, as what Miyabi's saying, that are relatively supportive or at least curious, respectfully curious about cannabis. And I mean, so like in, in graduate school, I, one, I act like act. a stoner. I am a stoner. So it's very <laughs> obvious that that I, that I use <laughs> cannabis. Um, so, you know, I would bring up in conversations all the time about cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. And it brought some really compelling arguments. But where I think I've and I mean, that's the reason I was chosen to help teach the cannabis course, too, because people were like, OK, she's clearly very passionate about this and spends a lot of time education, educating herself about it. And that was great. But I think in my personal life, I think my family had a little bit of an issue with being completely open on the Internet about using cannabis every single day since I was like 14 years old, because, you know, my mom's like, that makes us look like bad parents, et cetera. And I'm like, oh, am I like a bad person? Or did I do, like, did I do something to, to show that that was a negative thing? And, you know, just kind of walking through that with her and with the rest of my family and saying, like, do you have a reason for treating people differently if they use cannabis or if they're, you know, if they have used cannabis for a long time? Or is that kind of just integrated into the way that you think because of the propaganda and because of all the, the negative things that have been exposed to you over your life? Like that has been trained into you. So if you can kind of talk people through it and be like, oh, what is the reason that you think negatively about this? And then you know, not approaching it in a combative way, but just kind of like curiosity, like, you know, what is sparking these feelings? Why? Like, what can we investigate this a little more? Is there something that is there something that I did that makes you think that cannabis makes bad people? Because, 
Miyabi and I talk about it all the time. Cannabis makes us better people. And that has enhanced our lives in more ways that are quantifiable through any mechanism. It makes us better people and makes us enjoy our lives more. And I think that's the kind of the point you need to get across when anyone's trying to judge you for using cannabis, especially daily. I, I would say that I more associate it as a piece of my identity than I do. Um, and that's maybe a piece of what the radical uh, opinion is of that is that, you know, it is linked to neurodiversity. For me, it is inherently linked to my disability. It is the thing that allows me to function. It is the thing that allowed me to finish my PhD or to even still be here having this conversation. So I, I think we're moving towards that in the future. But I think we would be like ignorant to say that people don't have negative feelings about it. They do. Um, and I love the way you put that, Riley, that it's about framing it in a way of saying, like, I see those negative feelings that you have about that. And like those emotions might be valid for you, but you should consider the other side of it and the other experience. Can I just add one more thing? Um, Miyabi and I are also in the, the good situation where we're not we are academics traditionally trained academics who are not going for tenure track academic positions. And that is part of the reason we can be so open about it is because we're not, we're not playing that game. We're not trying to get to that point in our careers. We instead are, you know, using different non-traditional avenues to spend, to spread knowledge, to spread information, to do research. We're still doing those things, just not in that traditional mechanism, which did, discourage being open about certain things because it could influence your entire career if you were open about your cannabis use. And and luckily we've, I mean, it wasn't an accident that we placed ourselves in the current position we're in. Um, it was for that freedom. Um, but that does give us the advantage of being able to openly talk about not just cannabis, but any other natural products that we do use. Right. Absolutely. A part of my life or the part of the life goal would be to create like something that would be helpful. That's why I went into drug discovery was to help people. And initially, selfishly, to be honest, I wanted to cure myself. I thought there was something wrong with me, which is not the way that we should be viewing mental health or neurodiversity at all. But it was the way that I felt about my brain. And I have not changed like the opinion that that's like what I want to do with my life and what I want to do with research. But there's like we're so lucky to be able to be part of this industry and be able to create products and to be able to do things differently. And I think that that's part of um, that's a big part of this position. Like we both are in a position of privilege to have this as part of our identity um, that we are unapologetic about and that we do um, believe contributes to our research in a perspective that is different and going in a different avenue than perhaps has been possible before now because it's different. And we, and we want to use that privilege to share this knowledge that other people are not in the position to acquire on their own, like through the traditional roadblocks of getting into academia and especially grad school and, you know, finishing your PhD that, that does there's a lot of privilege involved in that. And, and we want to share that knowledge publicly and for free to bring more awareness. And so everyone can really appreciate this knowledge and to use that knowledge to better their own lives. So I'd love to hear more about where you are now and the opportunities you have at your company. So can you just tell us about, you know, when did Real Isolate start and where did the idea come from? What is Smoke and All and Profound Naturals? And if you want to share a little bit about your podcast, Smoke and Science, too. 
Definitely. So our company started, uh, my business partner, Andy, and I started this company almost, it's going to be almost four years coming up. And my business partner, Andy, has a rare neurological condition. And both of us are patients. And one of the main things that we wanted to research was why cannabis smoke is different and why cannabis smoke can have different effects. And so Profound Naturals, which launched earlier this year, is our hemp company that produces products that contain these different active molecules, but that you don't have to smoke hemp to get the benefits from them because they are compounds um, or different structures. I think we talked earlier about structurally similar molecules that are present having a synergistic effect. And this is something with CBD products that we see often is that isolated products need you need a lot of cbd isolate and that cbd can be more effective when it's combined with other things and we launched profound naturals which has one tincture and two different types of topicals that are available online and you could buy them and we ship anywhere in the u.s and these products so far that we've seen that are made with our own patent pending method are different um we have early feedback results that they are qualitatively different they feel different and that they work different and better um, when people who've used other CBD products. And so like, I feel really lucky and really incredibly, um, you know, the, the positive feedback that we get from our products, it makes me feel like, I, I, I don't even know how to put that emotion into words because I've always just wanted to help people. Uh, and cannabis is so capable of doing that. And it's a way to optimize that uh, and to harness this new additional power of cannabis in a different way, because not everyone can smoke and not everyone prefers um, needing to smoke to get specific benefits or specific like formulations. So when you're actually smoking, you're exposing that cannabis flower to really high heats, right? From your lighter, you're exposing it to fire. And that fire is kind of acting as a catalyst to convert some of the chemistry into different chemistry. And that different chemistry is interacting with your body in really unique ways and has uni unique effects. So, you know, technically we are a CBD company. We Our products do contain CBD, but they also contain a variety of different rare and minor cannabinoids and other compounds that no other products have. And that's why we genuinely think our products work better than other CBD products is because they're completely different. They do contain unique chemistry that other products don't have. And the people who have tried our products are responding extremely well. As Miyabi saying, it's like the most fun thing in the world to read the reviews that people are sending us and the, the direct messages. We get emails on our website just saying like, thank you for making these products. And you know, we're also doing research in these realms that we really care about, whether it's it's mental health, it's other natural products use and how they're directly affecting people's lives, not just looking at it, you know, from a just a standpoint of chemistry, we're looking at it on people are taking these natural products and how are they affecting them? How is it improving their mental health or how does it make them feel better when they're taking this product versus a different product? And it's been it's been really, really cool to research things in such a direct manner and be involved in the research from like directly involved. Like we are 
actually, it feels like we're changing lives and it's really, really powerful to feel that way. Because sometimes when you're in laboratory or academic settings, it, it doesn't always feel like you're directly um, changing or affecting people's lives or consumers. And now we can feel like we are and it's extremely powerful. It's a, it's a completely different feeling compared to the previous research we've been doing. That must be very gratifying. Oh, it's so gratifying. It's helping people who are like us, right? And I think that going back to what we were mentioning about medical dispensaries and people who care about their patients, and we know that they exist, and we would love to work with any any dispensary that is interested in offering in their patients, offering their patients like an option, like please reach out to us because we are so passionate about making this accessible to as many people as it possibly can be, whether that's like directly um, through us on our website, or if that's by offering our products at dispensaries that also value these additional options. I think this is, you know, it is just a very biased opinion because this is what we do, but, um, you know, it's really helping people. And I think that it deserves a space to be brought forward next to THC products. And in addition to, it doesn't have to be necessarily one or the other. Well, are, are you making, um, smoking all for for high thc flour as well so we we have a license to work with hemp so all of our products are hemp derived products they have less than 0.3 percent thc um we are interested in licensing and working and collaborating with other people to make smoke and all products using thc biomass we're open to that as well if people are interested they can reach out um, and contact us about potentially making some cool products together. I mean, we're we're all about enabling um, this technology to to get these new active ingredients. We're all about enabling other people to create products or to use our products in addition with their products to have these experiences and get the benefits from it. So, what what format does your product? come out as right I, I guess you're selling it as tinctures and topicals but uh the the process what what does it look like coming out of the the smoking process it'll handle like most standard like it'll come out as a crude and then we do like a we take a wide band of short path distillation and it'll come out as a comparable product like other cannabis extracts like I do believe that there's on our social media, there's um, at smoke and all. If you want to go look there, there's quite a few videos and pictures of actually what the extract looks like. It is like a, in my opinion, it's just a beautiful amberish colored cannabis concentrate. And profound naturals. Instagram is going to be posting one of those pictures in the next couple of posts. I believe it's queued up. So you could follow uh, profound naturals as well. And we'll be posting those pictures. Super cool. Um, so can it be vaped? Can it be dabbed? <laughs> Technically it can be, although we currently don't sell any, um, we don't sell like a form factor that mm -hmm. would allow that to be happening since our form factors are tincture and topicals. But yes, absolutely. We have. It definitely can be vaped and dabbed. <laughs> <laughs> changed, my, changed my life. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's a really like, 
it I know we're explaining it and it probably seems really abstract, but when you try the product, it really does feel differently. Like, you know, it's been described as this is what I think CBD products should feel like because you they do feel differently and it's really hard to explain. Um, but it, it's very obvious when you are vaping the product versus taking it um, like orally, like a tincture, because it is relatively instantaneous. So you do feel it. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting profile and it's a really interesting feeling. I'm going to have to come up to Boston and visit, visit you and see how that goes. (laughs) I feel like we should have you come back on as a guest again. I, I'd like that. that Anytime. I seriously, we have so many questions that we didn't get to. It's like, like most of them. Yeah. (laughs) It's a great conversation. That's Um, great. We need a part two. That'll be fun. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, thanks for being with us today, Dr. Kirk and Dr. Shields. We appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about your work and the passion you both bring to educate the masses and help move the cannabis industry forward. 